Welcome to the TBE Richmond Podcast. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On this feed, you'll hear sermons, teachings, music, conversations with guests, and so much more from us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Thanks for learning and growing with us. Shabbat Shalom. We are participating this Shabbat in the nationwide Repro Shabbat, um, sponsored by the National Council of Jewish Women and many other uh, organizations uh, around the country, including the Rabbinical Assembly, of which uh, I'm a part, um, focusing on and uh, highlighting um, issues of reproductive freedom and reproductive justice uh, in this country uh, and its intersection with Judaism and Jewish values. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful this morning that we're going to be able to be joined by a member of our congregation, Professor Gillian Frank, who specializes in the history of abortion in the United States and the intersection of religion and reproductive freedom. He is the co-host of the Sexing History podcast, uh, and he is a visiting fellow at University of Texas in Austin, Hook'em Horns, and uh, a dear friend. Uh, so it's really good to see you, uh, Dr. Frank. How would you like me to call you uh, during the course of our conversation? I mean, you can call me Gil. That's what we do in private. So let's just do it here. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, it's good to see you. Thanks so much for being here and, and having conversation with us. Um, it is a, a meaningful Shabbat to be having this conversation. We're um, studying Parshat Mishpatim, um, which is understood by tradition um, as having kind of the, the basis of um, reproductive law within Jewish tradition. In, in chapter 21 of Exodus, uh, we learn that the according to the Torah and later Jewish law following it um, does not regard an unborn child as a as as a, a life, fully formed life. Um, and uh, and Jewish law follows that in its thinking about um, uh, abortion and uh, maternal health um, and all of those related issues. Um, and I wonder if you could start by talking about, as you see it, what's the current state of reproductive freedom in the US and, and where do things seem to be going in your point of view? Right, yes. Um, well, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be here virtually and hopefully we'll be back in person together in the near future. Um, so right now we are in a grave danger of losing reproductive access in many parts of this country. Currently in Texas, they have a bill called SB8 which is a six week ban on abortion. So anyone who is, uh, has a fetus that is aged longer than six weeks is prohibited from getting an abortion in Texas. That has currently allowed, been allowed to remain intact and um, is being batted around the court. Before the Supreme Court, there is a case called Dodds, which is coming out of Mississippi, which is a 20 week gestational ban on abortions. What this means in practice is that if these laws are allowed to stand, most people will be banned from having an abortion um, before they even know they are pregnant. Most people don't know they are pregnant until at least the 12th, 16th, or even 20th week of pregnancy, just because of the ways in which people are aware of their body. It could be a couple of, or multiple missed periods. And uh, more uh, problematic than that is that if these laws allow to stand um, and are uh, held valid by the Supreme Court, many states in the country have already passed or will pass similar reproductive bans. What we're seeing is the gutting of Roe v. Wade in effect. Um, what this means in practice is that most of this country will have abortion bans if Roe gets, or I, I mean, I'm not very optimistic. I think it's safe to say when Roe gets overturned. And so 
what that means is that in effect, many people will have to travel for abortions or will have to access medication abortions if possible. So what we're seeing is a radical erosion, a rapid erosion of reproductive rights. This has been coming uh, for decades and decades. There's been a sort of whittle away through all sorts of what are called trap laws, targeted reproductive access, uh, targeted laws that uh, limit reproductive access. And now we're seeing the much more radical attacks that make it all but impossible to obtain abortions locally. So what's gonna happen next? We're going to see folks having to travel, whether it's traveling to Mexico, traveling to certain US states, traveling to Canada, going across borders to get vital reproductive health care. And I think this is the beginning of it. So once these laws are allowed to stand, we'll see even more dramatic um, build up uh, legislation building upon this, whether it's um, <clears throat> uh, prohibition of medication abortions, making it so that insurance won't cover it, which they already don't in many cases. What we're effectively seeing is a radical limiting of abortion rights and whether people and some folks in the anti-abortion community are already trying to build access to contraception on top of this. Um, it seems radical, but so did the overturning of Roe for a long time. So effectively where we're at is not just a rollback to the before Roe period, but there's legislation in, um, uh, in place that will ban the sharing of information about abortion and punish people who are pregnant who seek out abortions from even traveling abroad. This was not the case before Roe. So we're seeing a closing of the many loopholes that allowed people to access abortion in the past, allow people to access abortion now, will allow people to access abortion in the future. Well, so um, it's a pretty... Uh... Uh, bleak assessment. Um, and, and it, it sounds like, uh, you know, it's not just going back to the days before Roe v. Wade, um, but but maybe even a, a more restrictive state of affairs than existed before Roe v. Wade. Is that what, what I'm hearing you say? Yes, absolutely. So pri uh, before Roe, uh, laws would target abortion providers, um, particularly those who harmed abortion seekers. Uh, these laws uh, and legislation that we've seen floated um, in various states have aimed to target both abortion providers, those who provide information, any form of information network, and also um, allow uh, folks to target those seeking abortion. So whether it's uh, jail time or financial uh, punishment, or just a criminal record. They're trying to target those seeking abortion as well to sort of close the circle and make anyone involved in the activity to fully criminalize it. Right. In the past, they saw um, abortion seekers as not worth targeting for criminal punishment. They thought that was just beyond the pale and result in it because they were many lawmakers and those who enforced it saw realized that um, in the pre-legalization days, hundreds of thousands of women, the most generous estimate was over 1.2 million a, women a year were seeking abortions before Roe, uh, often illegal abortions. We're not counting those who somehow bent the law or found a loophole to get legal abortions in those rare cases. So what we're seeing is a much more ambitious agenda to make abortion 
far less accessible for all and the punishments far greater. Right. I mean, so uh, what you're describing and, and as you know, I've heard people uh, discussing this, you know, talking about a comparison between laws like SB8 and, and, and other you know, laws that are that are in the works or, or on the books that you're describing, you know, compared to the uh, fugitive slave laws that that um, that existed in the days before the Civil War in which, um, you know, if you if you caught a fugitive slave, you would be, you know, across state lines or whatever, you'd be provided, you know, mandated by law to uh, return them or you would be, you know, liable uh, under the law um, for, for certain punishments. And it sounds like a similar sort of affairs happening uh, in the abortion arena, where if you, if you, you know, um, uh, if you yourself are going across state lines or out of the country to go get an abortion, if you help somebody uh, cross state lines or, or something like that to, to get an abortion, right? Not just if you're the provider of, of an abortion, but um, that, uh, that, that all of those are, are you know, uh, going to end up being uh, punishable under the law. Um, you know, is, is, that, is that accurate? Yeah. I, I don't know about the fugitive slave analogy. I haven't thought too much about it, but what I have seen with SBA and other things is they're incentivizing private citizens to do reporting and they're monetizing it. They're saying you'll get X amount of money if you right. uh, turn someone in or sue someone successfully. And so that's been a lot of what has triggered um, uh, or tested out the legislation in Texas. Dodds is much more about restricting providers, restricting information and claiming uh, that you know 20 weeks is enough time. Uh, and then they'll try to roll it back beyond that. And so Texas is much sooner. And what it effectively does is it, whether it is a fetus that is unwanted or unviable or unplanned or changes of life circumstances for people who wanted a pregnancy, whether it's economic, financial, health, all of these things, it makes changing your mind or planning your pregnancy next to impossible. Mm. So the way they describe, the opponents of abortion describe it is they see the fetus as ensouled. They see the fetus as a human being from the moment of conception. And these are religious beliefs. They're not scientific beliefs. And so this is where we get into where Judaism steps in and Jewish values, which don't see the fetus in this way and see pregnant people's choices as something to be honored, as something to be protected and that the rights of the already born, the rights of pregnant people to be paramount. And so this is where our traditions are being trampled or where our views are being violated and where a theology that both emerges out of Catholicism conservative Catholicism and conservative evangelicalism are being codified into civil law to control our reproductive choices. So what Judaism has held for a long time, starting with contraceptive battles in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, moving up to abortion battles in the 40s, 50s, 60s, up to the present, is that we believe and we trust members of our congregation to make responsible choices. That to control reproduction, to control fertility, to plan pregnancy, to choose when, if, whether to have an abortion. These are responsible religious duties. And we've said this in many ways in many iterations. We don't consider the fetus to be a fully formed human being. We certainly do not consider it to trump the values and desires of grown women and men 
people planning their pregnancies. And we ultimately value the choices and the right to make choices. And so in our theology and in our practices, we have said that abortion is a choice. It is one that needs to be considered, that we should have access to, that it might be a difficult choice, but we trust members of our religion and we trust the broader community to be responsible. We don't see people as choosing to pursue abortion sort of willy-nilly, accidentally, sort of haphazardly, but because we value pregnancy, because we value life so much, we have supported abortion rights, we've supported contraceptive rights. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and uh, I just want to underscore what you're saying. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that the Torah portion this week um, uh, in chapter 21 of Exodus um, states pretty explicitly that a, a fetus is not considered to be a fully formed life. And, and later Jewish law um, underscores that by saying, you know, in the first say, you know, a couple of months of a, a pregnancy, the, the fetus is, uh, it says Maya Ba'alma, it's really just just water. It's, it's not even, uh, it's, it's not anywhere close to being considered a life. And then after that, it's considered to be Kiyerachimo, uh, uh, like, a, like a limb of its mother, right? So that means that, um, that you know, uh, Jewish tradition wouldn't say that you know, um, a, a abortion is something to be, you know, taken lightly, um, but certainly uh, reserves the possibility that there are cases in which it uh, it would be a you know reasonable uh, decision uh, between a, a a woman and her medical provider um, that uh, that you know that the and and later Jewish law even goes further to say that uh, that you know mental health uh, of the of the mother is a, a, a relevant factor of considering you know um, whether or not to uh, to get uh, to to get an abortion procedure, right? So, um, and so, and ultimately, you know, the only uh, instance in which it's a um, in which it's a more difficult choice between the life of the fetus and the life of the mother is once the fetus actually starts emerging from the womb. Um, and then it's a more complicated calculus between, you know, um, uh, which is the life that needs to be saved if, if, if push came to shove. Um, but, but ultimately, you're absolutely right that the Jewish tradition says always until the baby is actually born, the life of the mother takes precedence, the health and well-being of the mother takes precedence. And therefore, um, women should have agency or family, you know, uh, couples should have agency uh, to determine uh, what, what's the right healthcare decision for themselves. And, and what you're pointing out here is really interesting because um, it sounds like um, on, on some level, the, the fight over abortion access and abortion rights um, in, in some ways is a First Amendment question, right? So if, uh, if you know, if essentially, you know, the, um, the Catholic tradition is imposing in law its own values on the Jewish community, um, do you see like are there other conversations about you know uh, Jewish groups uh, suing uh, in 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 court you know uh, for, uh, for for carve outs at least in these restrictive laws um, for uh, for abortion access for members of the Jewish community other faith communities um, uh, on on religious freedom grounds? So historically, there has been attempts, but never successful uh, lawsuits and uh, filings to carve out these religious exceptions for reproductive freedom. They've often been done in terms of medical privacy, medical freedom, uh, reproductive freedom in its own specificity. 
but never in terms of an affirmative religious freedom to choose. And so there's sort of a subtext there, whether it is in uh, Griswold v. Connecticut, which is the famous reproductive rights case, which said that, you know, the sacred precincts of marital bedrooms shouldn't be infringed upon by the state. It was hinting at a religious tradition that said basically um, that uh, the bedroom is sacred, reproductive control is sacred. But there has there are murmurings right now of affirmative cases being put together and in the works, but historically there has never been one. Now, various ministers, rabbis, um, and other groups have tried to become uh, embedded in various uh, lawsuits to sort of protect the right to counsel or the religious right to choose. These were all in the 1960s and 1970s, but they were mooted in various ways, whether it was in New York or in Georgia, the famous case, uh, Doe v. Bolton, which is a, a twin case with Roe v. Wade, uh, originally had clergy trying to say this is our religious right to counsel and offer abortion and contraceptive information. But that has never been fully codified. There's also a case in New York, uh, um, uh, Lyons versus Lefkowitz, if I'm recalling correctly. But this is sort of, um, I think, getting into the deep weeds of history. I think the broader point that we need to look at is that much of the battle over reproductive rights has been framed in religious terms. And so this belief that the fetus is viable, that you are killing a human being at the outset by having an abortion, these are, these are religious beliefs for the most part, right? And the Supreme Court said in Roe, you know, uh, quantifying where life begins, this is a theological question. We're gonna take a pass on this. What a lot of these civil laws try to do right now is they're basically taking conservative Catholic thought, conservative evangelical thought, and taking it as axiomatic that in fact abortion is murder, that life begins at X point. Now there's no scientific thing to prove this. I mean, this sort of question of viability is, is a very sort of hotly debated one. And it's a combination of faith and technology as to when the fetus is sustainable outside of the womb. Now, the this sort of situation that you mentioned when the, the fetus, the baby is in the birth canal and at that point gains rights and we have to choose between sort of mother and fetus, that is so statistically rare right. that at the moment of childbirth. At that point, uh, you know, second trimester, third trimester, this is a wanted child at this point, right. or something has gone terribly wrong that you need a late term abortion. But for the most part, our faith, our tradition, and many others who are not of our faith and tradition seeking to terminate pregnancies are treating pregnancies as life altering situations, as fundamental choices and fundamental occurrences that will reshape our lives, right? Nobody's glib about a pregnancy or an abortion. But from our point of view, those who are just saying, well, why not keep the child are being completely cavalier mm -hmm. about how a pregnancy, how about another child will affect profoundly, not just the immediate family and their economics and social circumstances, but the community around them. So we've come from a point of view for a long time that children should be wanted, loved, and celebrated. And again, each child wanted, loved, and celebrated. And that it's up to us to honor life by being careful and considerate of when we reproduce. It seems pretty basic, but that has been lost in this discussion of 
you know, is it murder, is it not murder? Is it a fetus, is it a human? Rather than the circumstances and conditions on um, which we take this very sacred and responsible um, act of bringing another life into the world. Judaism has been very careful about this and very thoughtful about this. But that sort of act of saying, choosing is sacred has been tarred with this idea that abortion is murder and therefore people who choose to terminate pregnancies or plan pregnancies for whatever reason are murderers. And we are, we are trying to re remind our congregants, each other, a broader public, that our faith tells us no, abortion is a responsible act undertaken by serious and responsible people who for any number of circumstances may have found themselves pregnant unwillingly or with a pregnancy that might have turned through tragedy to an unwanted pregnancy, whether it's through medical circumstances, social circumstances or whatnot. Right. You know, it strikes me that that a lot of these uh, laws that are currently working their way, you know, in states and, and uh, around the country, um, you know, don't have carve outs for even for, you know, cases of rape or incest or things like that. And so, you know, use the word cavalier. I, I actually might use a couple of other C words uh, here, you know, um, callous and, and cold hearted in, in the way, you know, these laws are are being advanced, um, and and I think that Jewish tradition, to your point, has has a lot to say about this. You know, we mentioned before about you know the the parallel between fugitive slave laws. Well, Torah states explicitly that a fugitive slave um, uh, must not be returned to their to their master. That that you're supposed to allow them to go to freedom because if they ran away from uh, enslavement. It means that they want to be free, um, and uh, and that law, um, you know, which had direct you know implications in the in the pre Civil War. Era, Era, of course, um, has implications for, for this time too, um, recognizing our responsibility to um, help those who are in need um, rather than um, put them right back in the uh, conditions that they were in that put them in danger um, and, and made them oppressed in the first place. We have responsibilities to help other people. Um, we have responsibilities to pursue justice. And as you said, you know, um, this is in many ways a, a justice question uh, because um, even though the, you know, the loopholes are being closed, chances are good that, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the people who have uh, certain social privileges and, and wealth will be able to figure out how to get the care that they want and need, um, but, uh, but people with fewer resources in, in um, uh, worse off social and, and economic conditions um, will have a much, much more difficult, maybe impossible time uh, getting the, the care that they need. And then ultimately having a child that they neither want nor can take care of um, and um, having more people growing up uh, in, in poverty um, than, than, we, than we even currently have. So, so this is a justice question um, about which the Jewish tradition has a, a lot to say, um, in, including instances in which we are not only um, uh, 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 given the choice, but expected um, to defy civil law um, uh, when necessary and appropriate in order to um, uh, preserve life, um, the life in this case, being the life of uh, the human being, the mother, um, and uh, and and to pursue a, a more just society. So I'm wondering how you've seen this play out in history. Um, what what sure. did Jewish communities do to protect and advance reproductive freedom in the pre-Roe era, um, and what might be needed from us now and in the near future? Sure. And so I want to I want to just respond to a few things you said mm -hmm. and hone in really clearly 
based on what Jewish uh, leaders and laity have said and done in the past and what our experience has been. So one of the stories that we often tell ourselves to make ourselves feel good about who will be saved and protected and who won't is that it's only the least among us who will be denied access to abortion. Mm -hmm. Only the most poor, the most ignorant, those without means. And we sort of think of ourselves in the Jewish community wrongly as somehow more privileged, more educated, more affluent. Now, before Roe, many rabbis encountered people in their congregations um, who, because they couldn't get a medical procedure, because they couldn't travel somewhere where it was, if not safe and legal, safer, albeit illegal, had botched procedures, had no idea where to go, mm. were forced to take drastic means, whether it was attempting to self-abort, what we call sort of back alley or coat hanger abortions. Mm. And as a result, either died, were mutilated, ended up in a sepsis ward, or were bankrupted by virtue of having to pay exorbitant fees to get a much needed and much desired medical procedure. So it's not just the least among us who will be affected. These laws are meant to make it economically prohibitive and criminally uh, consequential for these. So there may not be shelter from the upcoming storm for many of us, right? Travel will be in the future just as it was in the past. So let's talk about what it looked like before Rao and how Jewish communities responded. So annually before Rao, hundreds of thousands of people sought out illegal abortions. Sometimes they could find compassionate doctors within their own communities. Sometimes they had to travel to places like Mexico, Puerto Rico, or um, to illegal butchers within their own community. If they were lucky, they would pay an exorbitant fee and have a safe abortion with minor medical consequences. They wouldn't be mutilated. They wouldn't be accidentally sterilized. They would go on to live their life and perhaps you know, come out from it mentally unscathed. They might see a doctor that would make them wear a blindfold so that they wouldn't recognize the provider and the provider wouldn't get in trouble. If they were very lucky in going the illegal route, they would find a physician who was compassionate and would be offering them affordable, dignified treatment. But those were few and far between. Now, what did rabbis, what did congregations do? Many of them got active. As abortion became legal in places like England, congregations would get together and they would create slush funds to allow congregants to travel who didn't have the means. They would help people from other communities travel to where it was legal. So when, for example, California liberalized, when New York legalized in the late 60s, early 70s, what we would see was mass medical migration. And oftentimes, rabbis would be among those counseling, helping people find these resources. They would appeal to Jewish doctors in their congregations and communities. So I interviewed rabbis, this is all part of a book I'm writing, and they would say, look, I would find the um, OBs, the doctors in our congregations and see who would bend the law, who would break the law, so we would have a resource to send people with unwanted pregnancies to. They were at the Jewish um, congregants and leaders joined Planned Parenthoods. They joined groups like NARAL. They joined groups like the Clergy Consultation Service, all of whom were trying to help shuttle pregnant people to resources that would allow them to terminate pregnancies. They offered reproductive health counseling. They directed them to places where they could learn about contraception. So basically, within synagogue spaces, 
There was workshops on sex education, on pregnancy planning, on abortion. Synagogues were at the center of organizing for legal reform in places like California, in New York, in Jersey, in Virginia. What basically we did was we got active and shared information and helped people travel and created resources. And rabbis were expected by their congregation, they were encouraged to act as basically referral sites. The idea was that basically what would happen in the process of um, religious counseling was it was protected by the law. Sharing that information would not be deemed illegal. And so more than that, Jewish congregants moved by their faith, moved by their sense of justice, came to lead a number of religious rights organizations, whether it was branches of Planned Parenthood, whether uh, reproductive rights organizations, I should say, whether it was um, branches of the clergy consultation service, whether it was group sort of offshoots of Narrell and others. And so there was a consensus within our community that, again, choice mattered profoundly, that these restrictive laws were not just sort of some sort of theoretical imposition, but were actually resulting into physical harm to members of our community, that these laws were resulting in people dying from back alley abortions, from self-imposed abortions, from uh, and regardless of these things, these tragedies, they saw that these laws were basically supported by one religious group and were limiting people's ability to have sexual relations free from fear and free from unnecessary consequences. And so there was this idea that our religion believes in a responsive and responsible law, one that empowers people to make choices, just as our faith is responsive and responsible. They didn't want a rigid orthodoxy to dominate our lives. And so what I would say is what we did in the past was we organized, we agitated, we shared information and resources, we empowered our, our clergy to act on our own behalf, to speak up for reproductive rights, and to help those within our community and outside our community gain access to physicians, to funds, and to information. That would be the nutshell version. Uh, I'm so grateful for um, your providing us with, with, uh, with, with all this history and, and all of your um, research and expertise on, on this, such a um, an important and, and timely issue. I wonder if, uh, in, in, you know, as we move to a close, you, you might you know, be able to suggest, you know, what's maybe like one or two things that we could do now or, or after Shabbat um, to, uh, to, you know, um, help move things in, in, a, in, in the right direction. Um, and, uh, and maybe, you know, what's one or two things that we can, you know, uh, read or resources that we can uh, turn to, to, to learn more. Absolutely. So National Council of Jewish Women has been providing amazing resources. And perhaps when this airs, we can have a link or we can have a sort of something on our website to distribute it that explains the Jewish perspectives on abortion, our historical perspectives, our present day ones, and resources on it. So they're the ones who organized this reproductive rights Shabbat and have been at the forefront of this. Um, going forward, I think it is very important. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are already groups in motion lobbying for reproductive justice in Virginia. 
I think it would be good if our uh, congregation decided to um, key into some of those and support those. The coming legislative sessions with this new governor are going to be very important. Our previous administration was very good about dignifying reproductive access and reproductive choice. The current governor has already signaled that he's going to fall in line with the more draconian and restrictive laws. And so there's going to be a fight in Virginia. If we're able to preserve the laws, that'll be a huge asset for those of us who live here. But it's also going to mean that others from the region, the broader South, the Mid-Atlantic, who are going to find abortion restrictions in coming days are gonna to travel to places like Richmond, places like Charlottesville, to our clinics here, and that our medical resources are going to be taxed. And we should try to think about how we can help those who are traveling to access resources and whether we might need to help those in our community travel elsewhere. I think that there are already funds in place like a national abortion fund and uh, others that are going to be doing that, but perhaps we should get involved. And again, I think this is gonna to have to be a congregation-wide discussion and probably um, <clears throat> a discussion that brings in other uh, congregations within the community to help preserve our religious tradition of reproductive choice, reproductive access, and what it's going to mean for, and again, I just want to flag this, it's not just young unmarried people who get unwanted pregnancies. Married folks do it, older people do it. Unwanted pregnancies can happen at any phase of life, and to make sure that we are able to access medical care that will allow us to choose when and whether to have children, I think it's going to remain vital. So there are resources in place, I think we have to tap into them. Well, well, thank you, Dr. Gillian Frank. Dr. Gillian Frank, thank you so much for um, being with us and, and sharing your wisdom and expertise um, on this really important issue. So great to have you. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. This has been the TBE Richmond podcast. Once again, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On behalf of all of us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia, thanks for listening. I hope this episode was uplifting and enriching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And please rate and review us so others will have an easier time joining the conversation. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Learn more about our dynamic, warm, and passionate congregation affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism at www.bethelrichmond.org. Until next time, shalom y'all.